This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Amira, and I'm leading the ship today. Along with Jessica and Brenda, we will be diving into corruption in sports in light of what seems like endless corruption in mega sporting events upcoming and recently past. Uh, we will dive into questions around corruptions in sports, why it lingers and what can be done about it and really even what it is in the first place. Interesting because part of why it's not sexy is because it's labor issues. And as we've talked endlessly on this podcast, that's an unsexy topic. People don't really know how to respond to it. They don't get up in arms in the in the ways that we wish that they would. In addition then, to that, of course, we'll be burning some things and highlighting some torchbearers of the week. And of course, we will tell you what's good. But before we dive into that, I have to know, y'all, we are now living under a new administration, Woo, which means we had an inauguration, despite the odds. Um, <laughs> and I have to ask, uh, one of the things that came out of inauguration was the internet, the the memes, the TikToks, all of the things. What was your favorite inauguration social media response? Well, I loved the Bernie meme, which I feel like I should explain because this morning I found out that Aaron had never seen it. It's like so for people who don't live <laughs> I on love the internet, the rock he lives under. <laughs> I know for people who don't live on the internet like we do. So before the inauguration ceremony began, Bernie Sanders was sitting, had his famous coat on his big parka coat he's sitting with his arms crossed in this folding chair legs where his legs crossed and then he had these mittens on and he just looks he's got his mask on his face and he just looks like he doesn't really want to be there (laughs) which I feel like everyone relates to on some level we've all been at an event where we're just getting through and but it was also it was against a white concrete background so it was easy to like photoshop it right so it was everywhere like I can't overemphasize how it was everywhere and I loved all of them I was that person I just enjoyed the meme in general so my favorite thing though was eventually someone was smart enough to make a video a gif I guess of the I love Lucy the famous scene where she's in the chocolate factory and she's trying to pull the chocolates off the conveyor belt it's like some of the best physical comedy ever in the world and it Catches it gets too fast and she's like shoveling them in her mouth and she doesn't know what to do with them all and someone replaced all the chocolate with Bernie Sanders sitting in this chair <laughs> and it's just like the smartest commentary on how this meme went everywhere and it just made me very happy. Literally everywhere from that that picture of all the men on the New York skyrise. Oh, I didn't even see that one. In black and white. <laughs> and th- somebody tweeted it and said, "Y'all play too much. Get Bernie down from there." <laughs> Did you see Janet Jackson's? 
Yes, where he's covering Janet's nipples. Yes. Um, and then, of course, he yeah. was uh, added to the iconic photo of uh, Diana Taurasi, Sue Bird, and Megan Rapinoe courtside at a game. Um, so, yeah, it was. I, I'm actually kind of disappointed in flamethrowers that nobody has sent us a meme adding Bernie to our, uh, <laughs> our live true. shows. Ah. I'm listening. I was I was like, uh, hello, where's that? Where's it at? Yeah, they had that I'm great picture of the five of us that Michael took. Yeah. You could just slip See? Bernie right in there. <laughs> Someone get on that. Um, exactly. All right, Brenda, what was yours? Mine was Rihanna's tweet with the oh, garbage so bags <laughs> um, and her sweatshirt uh, that says end racism by any means necessary. And then she's got... I don't know, some underwear, some tights, you know, her regular work work outfit and some great pink heels. And she's just taking out these nasty garbage bags. Um, and she just tweeted out, I'm just here to help. Uh, we did it, Joe. So um, I, I don't know. That made me smile. It made me laugh. I pictured Donald Trump in one of those garbage bags. And like, I, I, well, somebody like uh, edited it so that when she, one of her gorgeous little heels was on the neck of Trump as she was walking through the garbage. Yeah, that was, I nice. mean, she's just so perfect. So um, it was great to picture him in the garbage bag. It made me like happy. Yeah, put it in the Louvre. She's gorgeous. <laughs> Mine was, <laughs> I don't even know who, who did it. I wish I could give proper credit. Um, this guy did voiceovers of the interactions, like made voices for what the conversations were about, which I found so funny because they they felt like they really fit. And a lot of them were about the size of Lady Gaga's bird. Is that a real bird? Yes. You got a whole damn bird on you. That is crazy. Is it dead? At one point, you just see Nancy Pelosi, like, leaving and the voiceover saying, like, bringing fucking birds to the inauguration. Did they pat the bird down for a gun? Um, so I think that that voiceover clip was by far my favorite. So um, confirming what many have known and talked about for the last few years, U.S. officials officially say that FIFA officials were bribed to award World Cups to Russia and Qatar. This was first reported in April. It was updated in October. Um, and it's still ongoing. And I was thinking about this story because I was hearing the word corruption a lot in the last few weeks. Corruption in sports, corruption in government, corruption, corruption, corruption. And I had offline conversations with Brenda trying to figure out, you know, wrap my head around corruption in sport away just from the word. What is it really? And so what we're going to do today is dive into corruption. We're going to try to define it. We're going to try to parse it out. We're going to get to some murky gray areas. And then we're going to ultimately think about how the language around corruption can actually erase the opportunity for um, accountability and, and reform. So to start, Brenda, I want to ask you and Jessica, when we talk about corruption in sports, what are we really talking about? There's three big things that are considered corruption. What is the first one, Bren? Hosting is usually seen as the most obvious and recently the most amount of money changing hands. So in terms of the contracts alone, for Qatar, it's upwards of $800 million that have been not not pe changed hands, 
have been slushed out between private and public firms to construct stadiums and um, private security forces and all of these other sorts of things that they have to hire. As part of that, it usually involves things like using state regulations or city regulations because the World Cup, for example, is always a country and IOC is a city and the Olympics take place there in order to find ways to milk more money out of local governments and usually to suspend things like any workers' rights that might be in place and unionization. So we know about the deaths of the workers already in Qatar, that they tend to be migrants, um, often from places like Nepal with very little rights um, in Qatar. So the hosting is a big deal. The matches themselves are not most of the revenue. It's actually television and broadcasting rights. And that becomes like sold third party to third party to third party so that it's almost impossible to keep up with. You can't even follow that kind of money. And that's where you see, um, starting in the 1970s, really, that that being a major source of corruption. Mm. Yeah, I can see even in your explanation of it how so much is done like out of the watching eyes. Because even listening to you talk about it. I was like, there's so many places within that explanation for this corruption to kind of root down and, and happen. Um, and then, Jessica, what is the one of the other kind of main places that we see corruption, which I know is one of your favorite topics? I know. I've like, this is like my hat that I put on all the time here. Uh, doping. And we have such an obvious, clear example of how this works. Thank you, Russia. We've talked about this on the show before, but for the Sochi 2014 Olympics, there was a team assembled by Russia's sports ministry. So we're talking like an actual th- like thing within the government to tamper with tons of urine samples to conceal evidence of top athlete steroid use throughout the course of the of that competition. They did it in the dark of night. It was this really kind of madcap scheme. It's almost amazing how they how they managed it. But WADA, the World Anti Doping Agency, found that between 20 11 and 2015, the Russian Ministry of Sport erased a minimum of 312 positive doping tests. The nation's deputy prime minister uh, was Russia's top sports official during those games and was directly implicated by Grigory Rachenkov, the lab's director and main whistleblower. All the Russians winning medals at Sochi had a direct impact on Putin's approval ratings. Like you can just see how this is all tied into the nation state and that there's no other word for it, right, than, than corruption. Yeah, absolutely. And then the third kind of facet of corruption in sports, I'll shoot it back to you, Brad. Match fixing. Um, Match fixing It is really interesting because it also depends on the sport and how easy or difficult it is to match fix, right? So, for example, in China right now, um, the reason match fixing is so prevalent is because of the prevalence of betting. And the ways in which gambling works. That's the same in Italy in, you know, the 1970s, 80s, 90s. And with direct ties of the state. Because, look, Berlusconi, who would go on to be their longtime right-wing prime minister uh, in the 2000s, owned Milan AC. So, you know, he also owned the main television station. So it's all connected. But match fixing depends on the sport. I mean, football is kind of easy. Because why? You have handball. But handball... Easy. Um, and, and VAR is supposed to help that. So you mean like it's easy in that someone can easily touch the ball with their hand and change the course of the game? 
Is that what the, you mean? The ref can easily call it oh, or used okay. to be able to gotcha. easily call it. It was like, oh, handball, boom, right? Because it goes so fast. Oh, so that's what VAR can now say that wasn't handball. Got right. it. Got it. Thanks. Right. And so that's supposed to help with match fixing, but in the domestic league level, right? Um, how often is that going to happen? Um, it doesn't happen, obviously, that much in women's, but I, also there's a great... I don't, great, terrible, whatever, fascinating story out of South Africa about cricket match fixing, Mm. which has to be wild because those matches can go on for days. Like you could go and like figure out match fixing overnight and then come back with it. So, I mean, Uh, depending on the sport, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, no. And I think that this is so interesting when you talk about sports dependent. One of the things that I've been kind of watching the rise of is esports where, you know, we talk about the impact of the pandemic on sports and esports has has really doubled in participation. They're a little bit pandemic proof, right, because it's virtual. But that does not mean it's without its kind of shades of corruption. In fact, they've set up um, an integrity board the Esports Integrity Commission, the ESIC, because they're trying to head off early kind of seeds of corruption within the industry. And now you're thinking, well, we've just laid it out, hosting, match fixing, and doping. How does this apply to esports? Well, it's applying in very interesting ways. First of all, hosting, esports takes place virtually across multiple domains and across multiple kind of municipalities that are supposed to be directing this. So there's a lot of fighting and and opportunities to change like a what platforms are hosting most of this is on twitch now it's starting to be in different places but who's owning the virtual space the digital space where this is taking place and what benefits do they get has opened up this kind of you know like brenda talked about the all the possibilities for corruption within hosting sites it's there as well Uh, Match fixing in e-gaming in e-sports is probably the easiest thing to wrap your head around. It has to do with a lot of illegal bets, um, throwing the game. Um, And as you can see, Brenda just mentioned like how handballs were easy to call because it's so fast and furious. Now you can only imagine that with gaming, like how do you know if somebody is like pressing the buttons to their full power, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) But then I was like, well, how is doping happening in the world of e-sports Adderall mm-hmm. is the answer. Um, yeah, you think about people's ability to like stay awake and to stay alert exactly. and to, yeah, all those kind of mm-hmm. things. That makes mm-hmm. sense to me. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so it's really interesting to, to for me to see, you know, we've talked about this, of course, with soccer and you know, global football. Um, and we've talked about this, um, you know, corruption in baseball and things like that. But like having our eyes on esports as like a really emerging industry and seeing the ways that almost from the offset of them kind of having this gigantic rise is pairing right you know, step for step with also the rise of these three different ways that corruption is also trying to come into the industry as well. That's fascinating too, Amira, just to think like they're starting from basically scratch so we can see how these things are like made in real time or how they, how it happens in real time. Absolutely. And I think the thing about esports that like draws me to it is because there's also been, so if we have like the sport itself emerging and corruption, the other thing we have emerging with esports is conversations around equity and access within them, around diversity of like the esports governing board, around women's representation Mm -hmm. in the sport. Mm -hmm. And it had me thinking about all three of these things developing together 
overlapping, intersecting, intertwining. And Brenda had, you know, brought this point up to to us before. And I really want to ask you, Bren, to, to kind of think through it now, which is what are the ways that corruption is connected to these inequities um, in ways that like, you know, like we just said, it's not that esports is growing and then corruption is growing and then inequities are growing on these three separate pathways. They're overlapping and intersecting. So what happens if we parse that out? It's always fascinated me, Amira, how the coverage of things like racial abuse and sexism in sport is completely and entirely separated from a conversation about corruption. And I've said this to both of you. um, If I think about the case in point that's most obvious to me, it's Cristiano Ronaldo, the football player now for soccer player for Juventus, who um, was longtime Real Madrid player. And for me, what's fascinating about it is it's not that Juventus is particularly sexist. It's not that Italian football is particularly sexist, but it is particularly corrupt. And I think that that connection is actually way more important than we ever talk about. So just for example, and there, it's it just brings in, I mean, the word intersectional, you really can't underline it enough in this case. So think about it. You've got the Italian league, the dirtiest league in the world, probably in the early 2000s, prime minister owning and not divesting himself of a particular club. I mean, that's like a national thing um, right there. Owns a club, the prime minister. Oh my God. And then um, you've got, you know, 2004, 2005, Juventus wins the title. Um, 2006, it turns out that they match fixed with everybody. It's all bribing. It's all money going X, Y, Z. They have to return their title. The entire league between 2004 and 2006 is totally suspect at this very same moment. Then you just, nobody, you know, essentially nobody suffers. And, And the club, Juventus, is owned by Fiat, right? So this becomes really important because Fiat runs Turin. It owns those police and it owns everything else. So you got Cristiano Ronaldo, right? Just bear with me for 2018. They want Cristiano Ronaldo, the Italian league sinking in importance. Juventus gets him. They're in the middle of contract negotiations at Fiat with actual workers who make actual automobiles. And they decide to take the money from that contract and instead pay it to Cristiano Ronaldo. So those workers start striking. Those workers start striking because their contract negotiations are stalled because they can't fucking believe that you would take their salaries, the basis of the entire thing. And now this club has lost untold amounts of money from bribing and match fixing and having to give back and whatever. And they're just showing up for work every day. But no, that contract has to stop for Ronaldo. Then he comes with all this baggage of a a terrible um, rape case that he's able to not even be served papers for as it comes up a second time because Juventus sends a motorcade to follow him everywhere he goes 24 hours a day and have the police in his pocket so he's never ever able to be served papers until the Las Vegas attorney general just drops it. And like, I I just don't know it better. So like, thank you for going down that rabbit hole with me but that for me is like perfect like you you won't get justice you won't get accountability for the survivor in this case because fiat's corruption with juventus that's i think that's so interesting because you know obviously we followed this case and i understand all of that around ronaldo's 
the sexual assault case and out of Vegas, but you putting all those things together for me, Brent, I feel like is not even, this is literally the only place that I hear that story, <laughs> like that I see all of that together. And I, as a thinking as a journalist who does this work all the time, I can see that that's too complicated, that like people can't ingest that kind of, I don't know, complication. I'm, my brain's not working, but just... That's really hard to sell, like the the that narrative, that story, which is unfair. Yeah, what's the lead? What's, yeah, like what's even the lead? Um, when we did the story with Jen Doyle, we called it rapacious capitalists and sexist pigs. But that's so interesting because part of why it's not <laughs> sexy is because it's labor issues. And as we've talked endlessly on this podcast, that's an unsexy topic. People don't really know how to respond to it. They don't get up in arms in the in the ways that we wish that they would and then you like layer sexual assault onto that it just I don't know it's I was listening to you and I was like man I wouldn't even know how to sell the story even though everything you said just made me so mad but isn't that also pointing to one of the reasons why it's so hard to like actually address corruption because out of everything I think doping of course gets like that's the simple story like this person did this right match fixing is kind of like that as well but like especially when we get into hosting and we get into some of these ways the things intersect you can see how it becomes much harder to follow and keep track of and and why people just kind of like give up and i think that brings us to you know this this question where like what to make of the scales of this right like when we consider corruption is it the individual or the system i'm thinking of bridgerton fans and when will mondrich you know throws the final (laughs) boxing match is he corrupt is boxing itself corrupt you know and i think about you know this is especially when we start talking about doping mm-hmm. um where that can be an individual with an individual story that captures media attention but what happens when we try to like shift the scale and what you know what does it mean Jess Yeah this is so interesting cuz it makes me think a lot about Balco which is that San Francisco clinic or company or whatever that was selling yep. performance enhancing drugs PEDs to all kinds of baseball play professional athletes baseball players football players track athletes like all kinds of people and it became very much and I wrote about this in the or I've talked about this when I was writing the book I went into learning about Balco thinking oh this is like a couple baseball players and then as soon as I started actually reading the journalism which was incredible journalism around this I was like oh this is like super complicated and there's so many people and we only told a story about baseball because of the things we think about baseball and purity and blah, 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 blah. But this is actually an incredibly complicated story. And I don't know what to make of the fact that, yeah, so I guess one thing I have, a question I do have for you, Brenda, because you've thought about this corruption stuff more than, way more than I ever have. Um, I have to say, prepping for this really made me think about how I don't think about, corru- like, think about things as corruption. Um, so when I'm thinking about Balco or doping in general, I mean, so much of what we do is tell stories of individual athletes, right? Like we can talk about Marion Jones or Alex Rodriguez or Lance Armstrong, right? Like we have ways. And so are those people practicing corruption? Because I think Balco's, I feel like we could all be like, that's obviously corruption. Russia's obviously corruption. But I don't know what to make of these individuals. But I understand that we want to tell that, like now that we're like in this conversation, I'm like, oh, that's the easy story. I mean, I don't know how much sense it ever makes um, just at the individual level, but placing the individual within this this sort of community of athletes. And I think that almost always 
the person doping is going to be the person that's most vulnerable, whether psychologically, um, mm. in terms of hmm. race, racism and kind of heightened expectations, heightened, you know, I think about very, I mean, I, I think about Canseco, I think about these people that I find vulnerable in their own way to being corrupted. Being corrupted, that's a, yes, right. And and so I feel that they were corrupted. And yes, then a corrupting influence on baseball. But that's, you know, you have to think, you have to all agree on the rules for things to be cheating, right? And so someone's setting rules. So someone's setting rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. I, and I feel like, you know, it's always important to like remember that, like what that purity of baseball, like what was that supposed to mean? Um, for Alex Rodriguez as he's getting shuttled back and forth from the Dominican Republic to the Bronx and as he's already sort of objectified, as he's already sort of... And and I know, like, who's going to feel bad for him? But But then also in (laughs) disciplining the individual, it's putting a Band-Aid on a gaping wound, right? So, like, if you then pretend that you care about these rules that were quite arbitrary, right, and you decide that this one individual has, you know, worked against these rules and therefore an example needs to be made and you throw the book at them or you know all of these things but you're just placing a band-aid on like you're not even addressing and actually for the lay person they can't even see you're actually shielding and completely moving that person into a spotlight that then shields and casts shadows on the rest of what's happening that has even got us to that place in the first place and this is interesting to me because i'm thinking about match fixing in tennis which is a huge problem um but it really is only a problem in lower like in doubles matches and with players who are ranked in the 200s like there's not as a as the public we don't really care because it has not it's not Serena Williams or Andy Murray or like a name that we all know right but it is all tied into like how fucked up tennis is as a system <laughs> that the people who are the individuals that are participating are just trying to make money enough to travel to the next tournament um so you know you don't need Andy Murray doesn't need to you know, fix a match because he doesn't need that kind of money. Um, but then there is no like other than like tennis journalists who cover this, like no one cares that this is like a thing that happens in the sport. We all just are kind of like, oh, yeah, that's a thing. Well, they also need access. Whistleblowing is is dangerous. I'm not going to say that I didn't get my 2015 nor 2019 Women's World Cup <laughs> credentials, even with Sports Illustrated and The Guardian, um, because they knew exactly what I was going to write about. But um, let's say it's definitely a question that one has, and there's a lot of people with similar stories. Yeah. Like I, Dan and I joke all the time that like we'll never be allowed to go to anything at Baylor ever again yeah. in our lives. <laughs> right, like we're right. on a list somewhere. We <laughs> we recognize that that was – and when we were publishing that story, we've talked about this. Like we took it to Texas Monthly because Dan had a connection there, but also it wasn't a sports outlet. And we were less worried that they would not publish it because of their access to that the team, which at the time, if everyone remembers, was like – slated to win the national championship like it was a big deal yeah Yeah, so definitely access but but yeah it's interesting this is just bringing up so much for me about how we tell these stories and how complicated this actually is corruption and putting it on the individual but then when you get individuals like in tennis that no one cares about then it's not a story at all I like the way you frame that Jessica about how we tell these stories because I also really have a question about the language that we use around corruption and the language that people who are enacting corruption use 
themselves. Mm. Like I think about the NCAA a lot with this. And I think that it's definitely, especially now, a lot of people are being able to look at the NCAA and being like, y'all are so corrupt. But it, it becomes a blanket statement that kind of obscures like in what ways is that actually working at the same time that the NCAA is like, awarding themselves you know giving themselves the badge like arbitrators of what is actually corrupt and they are you know doing all of these regulations to try to root out corruption and this is why right that they can regulate how long you can talk on the phone with a recruiter or what your per diem is Mm -hmm. or um if when if you could transfer and if you know all of that is because they're supposedly deputized to be the people who are watching the corruption and making the sure the sport stays with integrity but we know that that is just not what's happening and what's even if we take this even a step further is that when we actually have documented proof of their own corruption we don't give a shit do we Jess no we really don't like I don't know if listeners will remember this we've talked about this a little bit on the show but like this jogged my memory that it was just two years ago that there was a huge or I guess 2017 to 2019 there was a huge huge corruption trial that the FBI was involved in around you know the idea that there was a scheme to bribe college basketball coaches so that their players would then sign uh, with these agents afterwards. And this is funny. When I was looking this up, um, I read this. The, this is the lead from a May 9, 2019 Andy Staples piece for SI. Quote, the verdicts came down Wednesday in the second college basketball corruption trial in federal court in New York. Oh, you missed that? Don't worry. Nearly everyone else did, too. Like, no one cared. Like, I, and I think part of this is that the media knew that this was bullshit, right? Like, and I don't know what you do with any of that, right? Like, I think a lot of people in the media were like, this is a weird thing to call corruption when we know the whole thing is corrupt. But then they keep reporting on it all the time as if it's normal. Amir, are you talking about, like, the idea of the NCAA telling us what is corruption and what is not and sort of placing them there ties me back to, I was thinking as... Brenda was like un- unraveling the Fiat, Ronaldo, Juventus corruption stuff. It makes me think a lot about the work that I do where I like I literally wrote a book about how sexual assault is very much tied into the overall exploitation and corruption within NCAA. So it's like the collateral damage of it. Right. But that's a really complicated story to tell. And people always want more evidence. Like I need more evidence of this thing that you're telling me about. And it's like, well, I wrote a fucking book. Like, I don't know how else to do, but I had to write a book. Like, it's so complicated and hard. And so it's interesting that those kind of things get sloughed to the side. And then there's an actual corruption trial and no one cares because they already know the NCAA is corrupt and they think this is garbage. And right. oh, man, I don't I don't even know where to put all my thoughts. Yeah, but I mean, like, that that's just it, right? Like, I when I was thinking about the language around corruption, even when I asked, you know, you guys to define it, and Brenda and Jess, you were really great about breaking it down into hosting, match fixing, and doping. But I also think about how the even understanding corruption through these three lenses obscures other things that I find very morally and ethically corrupt. I think about this a lot when I return to Jackie Robinson West, which was, you know, of course, the meteoric rise of a Little League baseball team out of Chicago that then had their 2014 um, Little League World Series titled Strip because um, another team that they had beaten went on a scavenger hunt to find and prove that um, a few of the boys on the team lived outside the 
geographic jurisdiction of this team. And so it was stripped and it was all this stuff about, you know, fraud and they fraudulently were using birth certificates and they were, you know, skirting these rules that had been put in place, you know, going back to the rules that Brenda said. And the whole time that I watched this entire thing unfold, that's still, by the way, being litigated. The last time it was in court was just four months ago. But the whole time I was like, how is what's corrupt this this idea about zip codes and not the fact that redlining and segregated housing and stuff in Chicago is so segregated and so despair like the, the disparities are so vast right that it could that's obviously like that to me the housing politics of Chicago the redlining in Chicago that's fucking corrupt don't give me a bullshit about some damn 14 year old but we don't even get to have that conversation because everybody gets on a pedestal talking about the sanctity of fucking little league game I just I don't know Bren and that's a global you know that's a transnational thing with baseball too because the Dominican Republic and again like I hate to put myself in a situation where I'm defending A-Rod at any point but um, but like the system in the Dominican Republic that is set up, you know, by the farm teams, by MLB is exactly and precisely about exploiting youth players and diminishing their worth when they can find a birth certificate in propriety. And then the argument they have is we want to protect children um, from child labor. It's like the shoes on their feet are made by children. What even is that? You know, like your Nike contracts for real? Okay. So I just, I think it's like the Little League thing for me just triggered everything about Major League Baseball and its treatment of, you know, Puerto Rican, Dominican in particular, and their exploitation of looser labor laws, their exploitation of the whole idea of getting immigration into the U.S. and what that means for these kids. Absolutely. Now, I think, as you can all see, that these are questions we're still wrestling with. And I think that the way that Jessica framed it as like, what stories are we able to tell? And Brenda's, you know, genius breakdown of so many of these issues points to the fact that maybe what we'll try to do as we move forward is figure out ways to tell these stories and to, to have all these considerations and to start a conversation that hopefully is ongoing. I want to leave this section by asking Brendan, you know, I'm going to toss it to you to wrap it up. We've talked a lot about how it's working. I don't think any of us have all the answers, but I'm wondering if you could point to something that we could maybe chew on or keep our eye on moving forward. What does it look like to think about accountability in terms of this corruption that we're seeing? So there's a lot written. There's um, whole NGOs that work on this, and I think that they have great ideas and they should be written more about and things like that but there's a couple easy things there's a couple easy things and one is that every sports federation needs to be separated from its professional league i'm looking at you mls that's that's the most obvious they should not have um the type of financial relationship where the u.s soccer federation is paying the salaries within the nwsl now i don't want them to take their salaries away so don't get me wrong um but they need to have some uh, independence from one another, in my opinion. And then I think, I mean, just think about hosting. The fact that each nation gets one vote is preposterous. 
you know, they need rights and responsibilities. Otherwise, you have $5 million going to Trinidad and Tobago to vote for a World Cup that they will never, ever have any hope of participating in. And what does that mean? It means why do they care? They have no vested interest in that. Jack Warner is just going to do that. And so it exploits the vulnerabilities of the smaller nations instead of getting them that power that it supposedly has. Instead, it makes it easy there should be representative democracy. I guess it's kind of like the U.S. Senate for me. Um. (laughs) There you have it. All right, on Thursday of this week, Jessica is going to talk with J.C. Cooper, a trans woman who is suing USA powerlifting over their blanket ban on trans lifters. They chat about J.C.'s love of powerlifting, why they're suing, and the support she has gotten from the powerlifting community. Oh my gosh, the feeling of that, like, of just like the stress and restriction. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And pushing against that and really, you know, being in your own body and encapsulating that power and like pushing against you know, something that really wants to get you down. It's it's much like, you know, being a trans person and in our society. And for trans people, it takes on that. It even takes on more meaning because you're intentionally being in your body and physically doing an activity that requires strength, requires power, and requires this ownership of the activity that you're doing. That is, again, dropping on Thursday, Please check it out. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? This is Shireen, and I have struggled with anxiety and depression in the past. I've often turned to counseling and therapy to help me through. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. And there's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. But this service is available for clients worldwide. Flamethrowers, wherever you are, BetterHelp can help you. You can log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. 
which may not even be possible in a pandemic anyway. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read testimonials that are posted there daily. Visit betterhelp.com burn, that's better H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they have started recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Special offer for Burn It All Down listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com burn. That's betterhelp.com slash B-U-R-N. All right, y'all, it's time for everyone's favorite segment, The Burn Pile. Brenda, I'm going to let you light the first match. My burn, and this is really strange, is also one of my what's good for this week. So on the cover of GQ, um, the Chelsea soccer player Christian Pulisic um, is, is, I don't even know how to describe it. It's so weird and beefcakey and cheesy and like 1970s and it makes me so uncomfortable, but go check it out if you have it. But the headline um, on it says, America finally has a global soccer star. Um, I think it's a really quick and obvious burn. Um, hi, Megan Rapino. Hi, Abby Wambach. Like, what do you mean? There's lots of global, you know, soccer stars that have happened. So I just find it fucking annoying and lazy. And on top of it, people keep just knowing nothing about soccer, but wanting to be sure that we all say how exciting it is before 2026. So one of the things they say, and I'll just read you a little um quote for from the article quote his determination to stay upright is a rare quality in soccer <clears throat> a sport in which some of the greatest players cristiano ronaldo and neymar are vilified for their toddlerish histrionics writhing in agony at the slightest contact really um gq writers really are you sure like yes people make fun of neymar but actually i've never heard cristiano ronaldo criticized for that point by a by a valid sports writer so i mean you're just making it up at this point and if you're gonna make it up you know then i'm gonna put it on the burden pile for being sexist and stupid um, but also hilarious because the photo shoot is so bad. So please go and check it out and make yourself happy. It's almost as good as the Bernie meme. Burn. 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 Um, I'll go next, which is kind of a quick update burn, something that's already kind of been simmering. Um, last week, Jessica burned uh, Urban Meyer's. Uh, hiring into the NFL and at the end mentioned that this also is especially annoying at a time where it seems like impossible to hire a black head coach in the NFL. And this is just an update to see that we're seeing more 
and kind of remarkable mental gymnastics to avoid hiring Eric Benemy, for instance, or other qualified black head coaches. Um, the Texans have announced, for instance, that they want to interview uh, former QB Josh McCown for the coaching position with the idea that they would surround him by like people who've actually coached before and then hope that he'll <laughs> work it out. The Eagles position was also filled by um, a fairly new junior coach, 39-year-old Nick Sirianni, and six out of the seven open vacant coaching positions have been filled, not a black coach among them, although special shout outs to the Jets for um, hiring the first uh, Muslim coach in Robert Salah. But I just, in the last three coaching cycles, there's been 20 vacancies and two of them have gone to black head coaches. The more and more you sit with this and grapple with it, the more egregious it becomes honestly and we know that the disparity between coaching and and gms in a league that's 70 percent black is atrocious and this is just becoming it's a mockery of the rooney rule it's it's disheartening it's frustrating and watching each new hire be justified. I mean, I don't know if anybody saw the press conference of the new head coach for the Detroit Lions. Oh, um, who burn. They gave, yes, <laughs> that alone just hired on a six year deal to coach the Lions and then gave what we can only describe as a bizarre welcome press conference where he talked about eating people's kneecaps. All right. And so this team's going to be built on. Uh, we're going to kick you in the teeth, all right? And, and when you punch us back, we're going to smile at you. And when you knock us down, we're going to get up. And on the way up, we're going to bite a kneecap off, all right? And we're going to stand up. And then it's going to take two more shots to knock us down, all right? And on the way up, we're going to take your other kneecap, and we're going to get up. And then it's going to take three shots to get us down. And when we do, we're going to take another hunk out of you. Before, before long, we're going to be the last one standing, all right? That's going to be the mentality. And I think that Mike Freeman, the sports writer, put this well. It's like no black coach could ever, 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 right, hold their opening press conference and talk about cannibalism and eating people's kneecaps. Like it just, it couldn't happen. And I think that the same way, right, that Trevor Noah had this great quote, you know, about this, or no, maybe Ta-Nehisi Coates did, about like needing to be president. To be president, Obama had to come out of like the best institutions to be like the picture of perfection and Trump just had to be like rich and white like the double standards there I think that you can start seeing that map on to football like these some of these head coach hires they have to be young and you know look like they have this like great future and like using this idea of a who has football knowledge who has who is you know the face of the team who's the face of your your franchise has really constrained the ability for black applicants to even get a foot in the door. And at this point it's glaring and anything that happens just underscores how, how awful um, the situation is. And I guess we'll have to just wait another year because black coaches are constantly being told wait till next year and next year never comes. Burn. 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 All right, Jessica, bring us home, please. I'm so ready for this. Okay. Madison Cawthorn is a U.S. House representative from North Carolina. He's 25, white, has one of those boxy rectangular faces. His blonde hair never moves. 
He is also disabled from a car accident, and so he uses a wheelchair. You might have heard of him from some of his greatest hits, including, and I really had to, like, shorten this list. It's a long one. But on Instagram, he posted a photo of himself visiting a vacation home in Germany used by Hitler, whom Cawthorn called the Fuhrer in his caption. And he said the visit, quote, has been on my bucket list for a while. During his campaign, a website run by Cawthorn's campaign described Senator Cory Booker, a black man, as someone, quote, who aims to ruin white males running for office. In December, he ran after burn it all down favorite Raphael Warnock saying quote you see this Warnock fellow who's coming down here and disguising himself as some moderate pastor from the south he spoke at the rally on January 6th before the insurrection and then afterward voted against certifying the election results there's more I could go on and on but let's focus right now on a specific thing this week Sarah Luderman wrote a piece for the nation about how Cawthorn has misled the public repeatedly about training for the Paralympics Apparently, one of Cawthorn's talking points during his campaign was that he was training for the games. Luderman writes that the most specific thing she found out about it was that Cawthorn said he was training for the 400-meter dash, and the only evidence that he was training, that's in air quotes, training, was him saying so. Cawthorn attended Patrick Henry College for one semester, and they didn't have a disabled sports program. He never competed in qualifying events, and he is not on the public list of disabled athletes who have been internationally classified, which is a requirement to compete in the Paralympics. The article really drives home how much Cawthorn lied about his athletic abilities. And quote, there is one real identifiable race Cawthorn name drops on Instagram, the Peachtree Road Race in Atlanta, which he described as the biggest 10K in the world, which I anticipated to win. It is not, in fact, the biggest 10K in the world, nor was Cawthorn likely to win. Multiple elite racers were slated to compete, including Daniel Romanchuk, who holds the world record for fastest wheelchair marathon in history. I want to burn all this shit around Cawthorn and throw Cawthorn metaphorically onto the burn pile, but Luderman ends the piece with an important point about the media that I don't want to leave out. Quote, Multiple athletes expressed frustration, not just with Cawthorn, but with the general ignorance of disability and athletics. If Cawthorn had claimed to be preparing for the 400 meters in the Summer Olympics, the press would have ridiculed him, but no one in media questioned his claims of training for the Paralympics. So this is a story about a lying liar. These are my words. This is a story about a lying liar who happens to be disabled, but also a story about a media ill-equipped to suss out those lies because of his uh, because of its own ableism. Luderman, who describes herself as a disabled disability writer, wrote on Twitter, quote, There are more stories like this one, stories about disabled people getting away with nonsense, because as soon as you say the word disability, non-disabled people's eyes glaze over with inspiration and or pity. Hire disabled journalists. Your outlet will be better for it. Here, here. Burn all of this. Burn. 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 After all that burning, it's time to highlight some torchbearers of the week. So, Jessica, who is our statue of the week? So, on Monday last week, it was Martin Luther King Jr. Day. The University of South Carolina dedicated a new statue to the current WNBA MVP, Asia Wilson, and it's a great statue, too. It's Wilson in motion. Her ponytail is flying behind her. Her left leg is bent at the knee as she pushes off the ground with her right foot, the basketball in her left hand being guided by the right one as she goes to put the basketball in the hoop. It's just beautiful. Wilson told the media, quote, This is the day we recognize the great Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. My grandmother couldn't even walk on this campus. She had to walk around it. If she was here today to see her granddaughter have a statue where she once could not walk, it goes to show how you just plant seeds, and that's what it's all about. I'll go next. We have two coaches of the week to highlight. I will start. 
with shouting out Jen King. The Washington football team uh, will promote Jen King to a full-time offensive assistant, making her the first black woman to be a full-time coach in the NFL, but certainly not the last. Bren, who's our other coach of the week? Monica Vergara has been named head coach of the women's Mexican national team. This is soccer. And um, she is a longtime national youth coach. She was a defender for the Mexican women's team. And it is just so exciting to see that team get a real coach that really cares about women's football. Here, here. And now, a drum roll, please. Our torchbearer of the week could be no other than Henry Aaron, a titan, a torchbearer for so much of his career, who sadly passed away this week at the age of 86. You may remember Henry for many reasons. You may remember his name as Hank Aaron, although he didn't like that name. Like Jackie was a name given to him to make him more palatable to white audiences. But Henry Aaron, who held the home run title, was 755 home runs for decades, who had 25 all-star selections in his life, who has so many stats that we could unpack, but really beyond the field is where his legacy really lies. He was kind, he was generous, he was brave. You might see reports this week of how he transcended racism. That's not true. He lived with it. He felt it very heavily. He dealt with it. He didn't ignore it. He contended with it. And he played amongst it. He also is a product of the Negro Leagues. He played for the Indianapolis Clowns before leaving. Tony Stone replaced him at second base. He used that uh, that next season. And he actually played down in Puerto Rico with the Criolos out of uh, Caguas in Puerto Rico. And that's where they shifted him from second base to outfield. And the rest of the story, you know, from there. And, um, you know, I just, he kind of seemed like he would live forever, honestly, to me. Um, and, you know, you saw him out advocating in this last Georgia Senate race. He was, he was out there. Um, you know, he said once, am I a hero? I suppose I am to some people. If I am, I hope it's not only for my home runs. I hope it's also for my beliefs, my stands, my opinions. Still, I'm not at ease being a hero. And I just have to say, Mr. Aaron, for so many of us, you are, uh, you were, and you remain absolutely a hero. You were a living legend um, and you were our torchbearer of the week. Rest in peace. So what's good? What's good in your world? Um, let me start with Jess, because Brenda never <laughs> knows what's good in her <laughs> life. So on Hulu, you can watch the reboot of Supermarket Sweep that Leslie Jones hosts. And I just want to tell people, if you want to feel good, just go watch that. Like Leslie Jones is the most amazing host. I know people have a lot of affinity for um, the past versions of the show and certainly there's nostalgia there but like she is just so invested in these people in a way that is really nice like she is not objective about it like she is just she is as much a part of the show as anyone else and I just find it it has just made me very happy this week I've also watched a couple good movies that I would recommend to people One Night in Miami Regina King's feature di- directorial yes. debut it's on Amazon I just loved it Leslie Odom Jr. singing, he plays Sam Cooke. That was wonderful. I just, 
uh, I, I liked it a lot. And then I rented Promising Young Woman. There's so many uh, trigger warnings and content notes to make about that movie. And I know that there are people who do not like it. So I would definitely, if you're, especially if you are possibly triggered by sexual assault, um, go read something about it before you watch it. But I really liked it. And Carrie Mulligan is unbelievable in that movie. So Promising Young Woman was a highlight for me. What's good for me, um, Samar, I'm going to have a teenager. <gasps> yeah. I don't know if it's good. what's good, but it's what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> Samari is going to be 13 on January 30th, and that's wild to me. I don't even know. Like, it's hard to even formulate words, I'm right? So like sorry. I, I feel like, I know. I, first of all, it's... It's a lot. It's a lot. I'll just say that. But I just feel like it was literally yesterday. I was like 18 and like a freshman in college and finding out I was going to have a daughter. And it's wild. She's been on a wild ride with me from from college classrooms to graduate school to being a professor, like all of it. She's my favorite travel buddy. Um, usually, I thought you were going to say you know, favorite child. <laughs> <laughs> no, Zachary is definitely my favorite child. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> just so we're clear Jackson. Uh, well I mean I love Jackson too but Z- I mean you know it changes minute to minute but Zachary has just been holding that down for months so <laughs> but I think you know if you know anything about us you know that usually we would be heading into New York for a few Broadway shows for her birthday and we do escape rooms together and obviously none of that's happening but um, you know she's a pretty cool kid even if she's an angsty teenager. And I just can't believe that that she's going to be 13. So that's absolutely um, my biggest, biggest what's good. Bren, do you have something? You can do it. I, you got it, Bren. I have, I have a treadmill. And Yay! I'm happy about my treadmill because it's been really cold this week. And that's been wonderful. And I'm grateful. Um, it was Shireen's birthday. That's happy right. birthday, Shireen. Happy uh, birthday. Happy birthday. So I'm glad Shireen was born. Um, I'm just super late to this, but Jessica Luther demanded that I watch 40-year-old version with her constant pumping up of that movie. So and good. So good. On Netflix. Everyone go watch it. So good. So yeah, so there's good stuff all the time. You know, it's good. I know I have to watch that still. It's on my list, but you know, I'm just still watching Jessica Bridgerton. Got me into Bridgerton, <laughs> exactly. I'm just reading the books at this point again. Uh, I did self-care. enjoy your pop culture reference to the Bridgertons during the segment. Thank you. That was just for you. Um, I felt that. <laughs> well, I, I, well, I will have to add that I'm very, you know, classes have started here at Penn State, although not in person. I'm teaching for the first time in a year and a half. It's a journey. It's exhausting. I'm already very, very over it secretly. But I'm very excited because I am teaching Jessica's book. Um, and, you know, it's always fun. And I'll teach articles from Brenda and both of them will definitely be talking to my class. It's just going to happen. Thanks. Um, and so it's always fun when I get to gush over the brilliances of my co-hosts with um, with with college kids. So uh, I want to tell you things that we're watching this week. 
We have still lots of global football action. Um, for instance, if you care at all about the FA Cup, we have an upcoming good match with Leeds and Leicester. Um, also, Barcelona will be taking on Bilbao in the next week if you want to check out La Liga. Um, the NWHL is back in the bubble for two weeks only. Two weeks only. That's a Dream Girls reference. Although it's one night only, whatever. Anyways, they will be back in the bubble for two weeks only. They started on Saturday the 23rd. They will be going to February 5th. All of their matches are available on Twitch. And the final will be on NBC Sports Network. That's it for this week's episode of Burn It All Down. Burn It All Down, you can find anywhere you get podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Apple Store, Find it wherever you listen. Please rate, review, share. You can find us on Twitter at Burn It All Down Pod and Instagram at the same thing. We're on Facebook. You can also go to our website, burnitalldownpod.com. There you'll find show notes and transcripts, links to um, our Patreon. Check out our Patreon for as low as $2 a month. You get extra content and access to us and behind the scenes videos and all this good stuff. Plus opportunities to sit down with us for fireside chats. I do want to hold here and say a note about our merchandise. In light of ongoing issues with T-Strings being able to um, make sure that they're not selling white supremacist content on their site, we have made the decision to move Burn It All Down's merchandise site to a different platform. We will be keeping our Teespring store up until the end of January. And so you have until the end of the month to place your final Teespring orders. The new site will have many of the same favorites that you love on Teespring in terms of your merch needs, um, but maybe not all of them. So if you want to get anything, you have, you know, another week to get what you want off of Teespring. And we'll be sure to update you very shortly on where you can get more Biad merch moving forward. That's it. I'm Amira. Today, of course, I was joined by Jessica and Brenda. This episode was obviously produced by our wonderful producers, Martin Kessler and Tressa Versteg. Shout out to Shelby for all of our social media content and graphics. That's it from us. Until next week, burn on, not out, and we'll see you around, flamethrowers. <laughs>